Hello, and welcome to Technology and Space, where we talk about the science, technology, history, and business of space exploration and commercialization. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Bill Airy, author of Lunar Outfitters, Making the Apollo Spacesuit, published by University Press of Florida, October 6, 2020. So that'll be coming out in about three weeks. Um, thank you for speaking with me. Sure. So what uh, inspired you to write this book? I, I know you worked on the program, but uh, tell me what, what brought about this book. Sure, yeah, that's a good question. Well, I started there at ILC in 1977, so when I walked in the door, they were just starting, they had just won the contract for the space shuttle spacesuit uh, that they were going to use aboard the uh, space shuttle that was going to launch, you know, a few years in the future from that date, but they were gearing up for that, and when I walked into the plant, I was just there for a part-time job to make some money to go back to college, and um, I remember walking into the plant, and in the back corner, in this dark corner, they had uh, a number of Apollo spacesuits hanging on hangers in the in the back, and it just it it, it just it was very impressive. I just I couldn't take my eyes off it because I was in my teens when I watched Neil Armstrong walk on the moon, and I knew this company was in Dover because that's uh, where I had, had lived at the time, and. Uh, uh, they were just south of Dover, but um, I knew this company existed. I knew they did the uh, the Apollo spacesuits, and I was, so I was a big fan of Apollo. Mm-hmm. And then to be in this company was fascinating. And so one thing led to another. Long story short, I ended up staying at ILC, and I, I ended up working with a lot of the veterans from Apollo. So a lot of the engineers that worked on the Apollo suit, mm-hmm. uh, George Durney, um, Mel Case, uh, uh, Homer Ream, all the, all the characters I mentioned in the book there um, – were really true to life, really interesting people, really great engineers. Um, they were, of course, uh, charging on with the space shuttle suit. But f- for a number of years, uh, because I stayed there at ILC, I got a good job. I ended up working in the test laboratory, and uh, I was testing materials, uh, all the basic materials that went into the spacesuit. I ended up uh, helping with. And um, eventually, I ended up running the test lab, and so I got to get involved in testing spacesuits. So all throughout those years, I was there a total of 41 years, and after having been uh, that that uh, witness to Neil Armstrong walking on the moon, walking on the moon in the suits that were built by this company and by the veterans that I knew and were calling close friends, I just felt an obligation to write the story about it. There were a couple attempts at writing the story, but it never really met the mark with me. I never really um, it, 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 a couple of books did an okay job, like Fashioning Apollo. Uh, you know, that was an okay job, but I really wanted to get more in, in depth and I won't, because I knew these po- folks and I also wanted to tell more of a technical story about the suit. So long story short, that's, um, that's kind of how I arrived at, at, at writing this book. I did it about three, started about three, four years ago when I knew I was going to, uh, soon retire. Mm-hmm. And I spent the time, uh, day and night putting this thing together and, and, uh, use these folks as references to bounce things off of. I have a number of original files from Apollo. That's the other thing. I was very fortunate to get my hands on the original Apollo spacesuit files mm-hmm. that put a lot of things to, a lot of questions to rest and a lot of technical details too. So I was able to get involved in, in not only the people's story, but the technical story. And by the way, on the side, I do some work with the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum on their preservation efforts of the Apollo suits. Mm-hmm. And so this really, uh, what something I wanted to do was get a chapter in there on what the Smithsonian's been doing 
and uh, and so it all kind of came together. So, looking at the table of, the, of contents, does the book also cover uh, some of the Mercury and Gemini suits? No, because they were built by. Um, so the Mercury was B.F. Goodrich, and uh, Gemini was uh, David Clark. Mm-hmm. And the the gist of this story uh, it centers on it starts out with a, a fellow by the name of Len Shepard who in the 1950s saw the need for uh, the eventual need for a true spacesuit. Mm-hmm. At that time in the 50s, B.F. Goodrich and David Clark were building high altitude suits for the Navy and the Air Force. And they were good suits for high-altitude flying because their planes at that time were starting to fly at higher altitudes, our jet aircraft that we were developing. Mm-hmm. And so these pilots needed pressurization. Uh, the problem was that they were designed for uh, pilots that were sitting in aircraft and only needed very limited mobility. When these suits were pressurized, they had very poor mobility, mm-hmm. but sufficient for a pilot. Um, Len Shepard looked at the designs that were out there, and from the get-go, from 1952, when he started this project of building a first true spacesuit, he did it because he felt that America at some point would need to have a true spacesuit. So from the early 50s, he set his sights on just building a spacesuit. I call the David Clark suits for Mercury, um, uh, or for, BF, you know, for Gemini and the BF Goodrich suits for Mercury, those are really what I call pressure suits. Some people call them space suits, and you can because they went into space. But the Mercury suits were never used for an extravehicular activity. They were just used in case an astronaut ever lost pressure aboard the capsule, the suits would inflate and give them pressure. Uh, same with, Mercury, or with Gemini. The only difference on Gemini was you had a number of astronauts that did practice spacewalking, starting with Ed White, uh, to see what it would, you know, to learn from it, because that's what uh, Gemini was all about, was to learn how to, to function in space, docking and spacewalking, so that when we got to Apollo, we could figure out all the, the things we needed to figure out and fix. And they learned uh, from the uh, David Clark suits that they weren't very mobile at all. They, 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 were, they were okay. I mean, you could go out and do a kind of a space float out there, and, uh, but they relied on airflow through the suits, Mm-hmm. And uh, Gene Cernan almost didn't make it back alive because in his spacewalk, he sweat so much and, and struggled so much in that suit. Uh, they had to pull him back inside. He didn't accomplish his mission. Mm-hmm. They brought him back, and, you know, in the debriefing, he, he mentioned the fact that the suits had to have some form of cooling other than just airflow through it. The BTUs uh, that he built up in the suit it just wasn't sufficient to be removed. Uh, for The air cooling wasn't sufficient to remove it. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so our suit, the Apollo suit uh, that ILC developed and made, had the liquid cooling garment that pumped the cold water through it. And that was actually a, uh, an invention of the, the Royal Air Force. They came up with that idea for their pilots that were sitting on runways under these canopies with the sunlight beating down on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were getting overheated, so they developed this liquid cooling garment. So NASA kind of adapted it, uh, gave it to us to study and, and figure out how to do production models with, and we did that. Uh, so I really, I really uh, dwell on what I, I call the first true space suits. Those were the ones that you know were open the door, go out and work in space type suits. Mm-hmm. And just uh, my my timeline isn't clear here, but um, w- did you work on the Apollo One suits? Were were all the suits? Um... Yeah, that's a good question. So um, so NASA determined that there's there had to be, and, and again, it's all in the book. It's it's a, it's gonna be a long story, but I'll keep it brief. Mm-hmm. Uh, the early parts of Apollo, uh, ILC had won the contract in 19, uh, 
65 to be a sole contract sole contractor on the Apollo suits, but we had a long way to go to develop it, and, and NASA knew that, and they wanted to give us time. So what they thought they'd do is break it up into what they call Block 1 and Block 2 missions. So Block 1 would be all the Apollo missions from Apollo 1 through Apollo 10, where we would get to the moon but not land on the moon. And so they could they figured that they would use the, the David Clark suits, the, the old Gemini suits, because they would just be used on board the, the capsules, and, and that would be it. Maybe some lunar module work, but not landing on the moon, but just practicing, things like that. And they had the confidence in the David Clark suits to just call that the Block 1 mission suits. That would give ILC time to develop the true moon suits to be used for Apollo 11 and, and the following missions that would land on the moon. So that was Block 2. And um, what happened? So, so the the crew uh, that was on board of Apollo One, Grissom, White, and Chaffee, uh, when the the capsule caught fire and killed those three astronauts, they were wearing the David Clark suits because they were they were the Block One mission, so they were going to use the David Clark suit. And uh, so, uh, what was learned from that was that. Of course, number one, the capsule door opened in, and that wouldn't allow them to get out because of pressure on board with the fire going on that couldn't open the door. So NASA said, well, in the review boards, they said, well, of course, we have to have these doors open outward. The other thing is, how much time would it take for an astronaut to get out of the capsule? And they figured it would take about 50 seconds. That's the best average they could come up with, with an astronaut opening a door outward, disconnecting hoses, and scrambling to get out. It would take about 50 seconds for the entire crew. So then the question was, what kind of material could be developed to uh, keep them alive in a flaming, uh, very hot capsule up to, you know, 1,000 degrees and allow them to get out? So uh, at the time, NASA knew of a company, uh, Corning, Owens Corning, who was developing a, a material called beta cloth. And they, beta cloth was uh, something that Owens Corning came up with to be used in, like, hotels and for like drapes and things like that, where it could take very high temperatures and not catch fire and, and uh, be fire resistant. So it was a woven fiberglass strand is what it was. And so we adapted that to the Apollo suits right after the Apollo 1 fire. And testing showed that it could take 1,200 degree Fahrenheit temperatures and get those astronauts out. So um, so we, became, we began a real quick modification on those Apollo suits in 1967 to, to use this, um, right after the fire, to use this beta cloth for the outer garment layer. And when that happened, NASA looked at it and said, well, because we have to modify these Apollo suits so much, we're now going to drop the Block 1, Block 2 thing. And, and when Apollo starts from the very beginning, uh, we're going to use the ILC suit. So they never used the David Clark suit. So our suits were used from the very beginning, and they used the uh, – from Apollo 7 uh, missions when we first uh, started, and we used the um, the beta cloth on the outside. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm speaking with Bill Airy, author of Lunar Outfitters, Making the Apollo Spacesuit. You can find more information about the book at the University Press of Florida website. If you like this podcast, Technology in Space, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history, please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and fullcontactnerd.com. Now back to the podcast. 
how much, uh, so, so I saw in the book where it said, uh, 15 layers of material are used in the suit. Is that more or less, uh, throughout or I'm curious. What yeah, it, that's, that's a, that's a, a good question because there are various areas where it's more and less. So, um, so I had to like pick an average number because in the book I describe all the different missions and each of the suits and the variations between them. And believe me, it takes a book to do that because <laughs> there's so many fine details. <laughs> but the basic parts of a suit um, have about 15 layers, give or take. There's some abrasion layers uh, in certain areas. Um, the gloves, you know, maybe aren't as thick. Uh, there's not as many materials. So... Uh, there's not as many layers, so it, it all varies depending on where you look at it in the suit. But, you know, your basic suit starts with the, the liquid cooling garment, as I said. So if you're walking on the moon surface there, it can get very hot. You're working hard. The sun might be beating down on you. and you're So you need that liquid cooling garment to remove that body heat. Then you have a the bladder layer that holds all the oxygen in the suit. Then a restraint layer that keeps the shape of the suit. Think of it like a... A tire. It has an inner tube, and it has a, the tire itself. The tire gives it the shape. The inner tube keeps the air from leaking out. So you have the bladder, and then the restraint. The restraint was a nylon material that kept it from growing. It didn't stretch much. Outside of that, and that would be enough really to almost take a spacewalk in. You could go out and function in it. However, you have the solar radiation. You have um, uh, micrometeorite penetration. Um, there's all these things going on in space where you have to protect the outer layers of the suit. So we put a thermal micrometeorite garment on the outer layer, and that's where a lot of your layers are. And they're layers of aluminized mylar with some uh, non-woven material in between as a spacer so it doesn't conduct the temperatures through because you have no convection. There's no uh, no air out, out in space, but you have to worry about conduction. So you have those uh, various layers applied up in between the mylar. And then, of course, the outer layer of the beta cloth protect against any possible fire on board on the launch pad like Apollo 1, and you had abrasion layers on, on, on that. So, uh, so yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of layers, and it all depends on where it is in the suit. So how did, um, how did you go about um, finding the best materials for each layer? Um, was there constant testing and, and ser- you know, searches for this, or did you tend to work yeah. with yeah, so, so ILC's responsibility was to find materials to make the suit function, the bladder layers, the restraint layers, the T- TMG, thermal micrometeorite garment uh, called TMG, mm-hmm. TMG layer, the outer coat there. Um, but what we had to do was work hand-in-hand with NASA uh, down to Johnson Space Center, uh, where, and also they had a facility at White Sands, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. So they could take, like we would, we would find the mylar, we would find the, the non-woven Dacron materials and all the spacers and build up the plies as we wanted them. And it, it might have been at NASA's urging to say, give me, you know, seven layers of this and, and, and eight layers of that. And, and we would send them little ply-up samples, and then they would, they would put it in their testing facility uh, for flammability. They would shoot little micrometeorite particles at high velocity at it. Um, they would study it for, uh, you know, radiation penetration, uh, all those things. And, and we relied on their results and to, to determine whether or not we had the right makeup of material. So it was a constant communication between NASA and ILC about whether or not this would work. Um, and so their labs would do a lot of that material testing, but, but I, I, the big thing I play out in the, in the book is, is a story about the testing of the suits because mm-hmm. you could test the materials, you could 
put them on what we call an Instron machine. It's a universal tester which pulls things apart. So you can make seams and grab them in these jaws, and the machine pulls them apart and tells you how many pounds of strength. And that told the engineers whether or not they had the basic strength. So mm-hmm. you can engineer a spacesuit off a drawing board, so to speak, and get the materials and test each one under uh, lab conditions. But until you put that suit together and put a person in the suit and put them on a treadmill or, you know, various types of tests, you didn't know whether you had a suit that was going to work. And often, quite often, especially in the beginning, these suits were failing left and right Mm -hmm. because what the engineers thought would be fine uh, would hold up for a few hours. But if they were simulating what an astronaut might do on the moon after an hour or two, uh, there were restraint cables in there. There, there were these uh, uh, steel aircraft cables that gave it some structural support. Mm-hmm. And those cables were cutting through things, of course. You know, you're talking about a suit that's made up of fabric samples, fabric materials, and you have this, this cable. And if this cable is up against this soft material and you're walking on a treadmill repeatedly over and over and over, it's like a knife cutting through butter. After a while, it's just going to cut through it. Mm-hmm. So the engineers had to figure out ways to overcome these problems, and it took a number of years. You know, it took a few years of development from 65 till 68, 69 is when we really started nailing the suit down and getting it the way NASA and, and the astronauts felt comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of testing involved, uh, not only on NASA's part, but, you know, it was thrown back to us, and we'd have to put someone in the suit and determine whether or not it was going to hold up. So what, uh, I'm curious about the seams, how you keep the seams, um, keep their integrity, um, or is that a big deal? Are the seams a big deal? No, you you know, a lot of people uh, ask that question. So, uh, again, a good one. Um, So the material was a neoprene-coated nylon, and what the the workers would do would be they'd have patterns, and they would they would butt the they would cut the pieces, butt them together, and use a, a tape. So they would be taped together. Some areas would be stitched, but where the stitching was, they put a top tape over and cement it down over the stitching so there wouldn't be a leak. And so this bladder was put together with this neoprene coated nylon material. It was totally sealed up with uh, cement. It was cemented together, uh, an adhesive that they would use, and and then it would fit inside the restraint. Now, the patterns for the bladder layer were cut bigger than the patterns for the restraint layer. If you think about it, it makes sense because once you put that bladder inside the restraint and you inflate it, it wants to pressurize and grow out. Mm -hmm. But you don't want it to be smaller in size because it's going to be stressing the restraint of the bladder layer. You want to stress the restraint layer. So the pattern, so this is one of the little nuances, the little things that the engineers and the people of ILC had to uh, figure out. They had to make these patterns different sizes and the bladder, which was inside the restraint, was cut a little bit larger so that it, it had room to grow without stretching and stressing any of the seam parts in there. So, mm-hmm. so that's how it kind of kept the air pressure. And then there's the, you know, the next question might be, well, well, how does it not leak out of all the hardware connections? Well, there are different various ways that they would clamp the hardware, like the wrist disconnects or the helmet disconnect. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would take the bladder along with the restraint and have a flange and you would have the clamp uh, and then the neck ring or the, the wrist ring on the outside of that, and they would, you know, there were several screws that would screw together to kind of squeeze it and seal it together, and there were some O-rings involved. Mm-hmm. So there was ways that they came up with to make the suit so that it was pretty tight, uh, and, and, and uh, no suits ever leak free, but the back, because the backpack made up uh, for the, any air loss uh, that you might have over a seven or eight 
hour period of a spacewalk, a uh, moonwalk. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were pretty pretty tight, pretty reliable. Did ILC also uh, work on the helmets? Uh, originally, yes. And uh, that's an interesting part in the book, I tell. Um, we were doing helmet work before we won the Apollo contract. Mm-hmm. And it was really the helmet work that, that, that inspired Len Shepard to start getting involved in the the pressure of the spacesuit work because we were building these uh, MA-2 helmets for the Air Force and the K-1 helmets, and the Air Force really liked our helmets. And so we felt that when we got into the spacesuit business, uh, we would also develop helmets. Well, at the time, if you remember those early early spacesuits from the 1950s and 60s, uh, the Buck Rogers types that you see on, on, uh, on some of the old movies and stuff, the helmets are really big and bulky. You put a helmet on, and it had a... Uh, like a bearing in it, so when you turned your head, the whole helmet moved with you, and it was really cumbersome and claustrophobic, but that was the state of the art at the time, and um, our suit was really bulky and very large in the early 60s, and we were really having trouble with that, and NASA uh, was skeptical, and so were others, that we would ever really carry this this suit through to the final uh, competition and win it, mm-hmm. and at the, right around 1965, two engineers from uh, Houston, uh, Jones, um, uh, I forget the other guy's name, um, but two engineers from NASA uh, worked with a company called Techstar in the Houston area that was at the time developing a polycarbonate material that could be used as a bubble shell and have good optic qualities. That was the trick, was getting good, good optical qualities. So Robert Jones and this other fellow, uh, they wanted a suit to try it on. So we said, well, bring your helmet up and we'll try it. And they brought it up, and lo and behold, this is at a time when we were in competition and had to really have a good suit. We we tailored our suit to have this, this small smaller helmet to go onto the torso, which really freed things up for the shoulder design to change radically. And it became a real, a real winner. NASA was tickled that we could use their helmet. They, everybody was pleased that this suit all of a sudden gained the, the, the sizing that it did, the, the less size. It came down in size, made it easier to fit. And so that was a real winner. So we did not – we were responsible for the contract after that. But I have to say that those two engineers from NASA were the ones that really came up with the idea of the bubble helmet. Then they, once we won the contract, they gave us the contract. They uh, uh, they told us we'd be responsible for the helmet work. So mm-hmm. uh, eventually, Airlock um, was uh, uh, we uh, used them as a subcontractor to develop the helmets for us. And Ling Tempko Vought uh, LTV did the outer shell for the um, lunar extravehicular visor assembly that you see on the moon there with Buzz and mm-hmm. Neil and all the other astronauts. That outer shell was made by LTV. So I also saw in the description, I think it was the book description, that uh, each suit was tailor-made for each astronaut, and I'm curious what kind of issues that caused. Oh, lots. You know, um, uh, you know the, the spacesuits are so interesting if you think about it. You know, when you have astronauts that are developing a space capsule, uh, you're talking mechanical engineers, uh, you know, North American Aviation was developing the capsule and Grumman, the, the lunar module, and you could get a pretty pretty good tight consensus from the astronaut corps what they wanted in the capsule where the switches should be where uh, everything should be set up and that, that worked out pretty I mean, it, was, it was a struggle but it worked when you get astronauts to try on a spacesuit that's custom made for them uh, with 66 uh, to 70 uh, measurements of each astronaut there was about 70 
each astronaut would have taken of their body, and then that suit would be custom-tailored. So you would have a good example is uh, we had a crew, this was told to me by uh, one of the engineers. They came in for the fit check, and it was a, the commander and the lunar module pilot that came in the same day for their fit check. And according to this engineer, the suits pretty much fit each of them the same. There were some, there's always some discrepancies or problems where the suits have to be fine-tuned. That's why they would come up to uh, ILC in Dover, Delaware, to, for their fit checks. And the commander got in his suit. He was pressurized in for the first time. There were some adjustments to be made, and they were made, and, and he, uh, you know, asked for a couple more, but that was it. And he said, you know, this is pretty good. I like this suit. This is the way I want it. Yeah, great. So he gets out of his suit, and the lunar module pilot gets in his suit. And and he um, he feels that he's got a little more pressure on his shoulders. He, he wants it to be adjusted, so he adjusted it. And then it's like, well, gosh, this is really kind of hurting me in my knee. Can you adjust that? So this went on for a long time, and you know, finally, the point of this engineer, the the the, the commander turned to the, the lunar module pilot and said, "Listen, you know, he's kind of half joking, but you tell him he was finally getting a little bit pissed off about all this." He said, "If you want to fly with me on this mission, you're going to accept this suit the way it is because I don't see where there's any problem." And it wasn't long after that that the lunar module pilot was like. Okay, yeah, it's probably all right. I'm just getting too picky. The point <laughs> is that a lot of these astronauts, you know, the customer's always right type thing. So from the standpoint of the engineers developing these suits and tailoring them, getting to fit each of the astronauts, you want them to be happy and very pleased with their suit. Mm-hmm. And some of them were like, yeah, this is great. I love it the way it is. And some were just, I mean, just uh, every little ache and pain, every little thing. They mm-hmm. wanted that perfect fitting suit. Yeah. And the suit was... I mean, I think some of the astronauts understood that this was state-of-the-art at the time. It, you know, maybe uh, 50 years later, it would be a better suit with newer materials. And, uh, but, but given the, the challenges and, and getting to the moon by the end of the decade and getting back, this was the best thing we had. And they bought off on it. And, and like Gene Cernan, great guy. And, and when it was all done to this, you know, to the day he passed away, and I met Gene on a number of occasions, he would say, that was a great suit. He said, I love that suit. It fit me great. He said, no problems at all. And in deep briefings, he would say, yeah, you know, it's it pinching my fingers a little bit. While some of the other astronauts were, I mean, I don't want to call them crybabies because they're American heroes to me. <laughs> but a couple of them were really, oh, it really hurt my fingernails. And, and this really hurt and that hurt. And I'm sure it probably did. Mm-hmm. But that was a challenge of a spacesuit. And even to this day, it's still a challenge. Um, and we could go off on a whole nother tangent on that. But, mm-hmm. but developing a spacesuit that is perfectly fitting, uh, the, 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 the anthropomorphic, you know, dimension, every body part that has to flex and bend in that suit mm-hmm. and, and do it comfortably while at pressure in, in a lunar environment, it's very tough to do. And uh, mm-hmm. um, so, so that's my, my long story there. <laughs> no, it's interesting. Um, so you mentioned a couple of layers uh, to uh, – to protect against radiation, also micrometeorites. And, you know, currently there's all this talk about, you know, when when humans go into deep space or to Mars, you know, how do we deal with this? And it sounds like, to some extent, your suit did deal with these issues already. Yeah, and um, I'm not uh, an engineer, uh, materials engineer from NASA that could get into great detail about solar loading, radiation mm-hmm. effects and all that, but I will say that I know for a fact that the, the number of layers we had in the Apollo suit were fine. They were designed to 
get them um, their eight hours on the moon through multiple, you know, three spacewalks, uh, through three lunar excursions while they were there. And it did a fine job uh, reflecting the radiation away with all those layers of aluminized mylar. On, on any future travel, when you go through radiation belts, and I know things like that, they are concerned about long-term travel. And most of that really involves the time you're spending on board the spacecraft itself mm-hmm. because it can penetrate spacecraft. Uh, so, so, But you're not in the spacesuit for such a long period of time that you can't protect against it with these layers that we can put in the suit. Mm-hmm. But you definitely have to have it, obviously. That's important. Um, so I would just say that the suits were designed and even to this day are designed, developed to protect an astronaut for the length of time they're out there with uh, with zero issues. They carry uh, um, radiation devices in their liquid cooling garment in a pocket there that's inside the suit. Mm-hmm. So they can be monitored after they get back. And, uh, and again, I'm not privy to what the results are, but obviously there's been no issues because there's been no uh, drive to change the design of the suit based on any of the results they get back. So they, they constantly monitor those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But again, I think the, the big thing that NASA has to, the challenge they have ahead of them is uh, deep space travel, a long duration, uh, protecting uh, the spacecraft itself uh, to protect the astronauts um, so that they ultimately don't have any, uh, any issues. Mm-hmm. So I guess uh, sort of the deeper into the weeds question I had then is, um, so with the various layers, especially the radiation and, and micrometeorite layers, uh, do they break down over time? You know, are they limited because they start to break down in some way or wear, wear and tear uh, over these um, hours? Well, uh, so let's just talk about Apollo. So Apollo was a one-and-done suit. So they went to the moon, they came back, the suits are retired, um, they never flown again. Uh, they ended up in the Smithsonian. Um, they were they had a lot of rubber components. Uh, the the neoprene coated uh, bladder layer. Uh, there were some uh, items uh, in all the joints that flex, like the elbows and the wrists and the knees and and ankles and all those parts that flex. Mm-hmm. There was a rubber convolute in there. It was like an accordion that flexed. And I go into great detail in the book to to talk about what the convolute was because that's what really helped us win that contract. And it was rubber. So rubber, state-of-the-art back in the 60s, it did great. But we even found during some of those missions they were breaking down. It wasn't during a mission, but pre-mission they found on Apollo 14 there was a a real problem because right prior to the mission we found that there was a lot of rubber that was in one of the suits that uh, was starting to decay prematurely. So that was a a touch-and-go situation. Uh, uh, but again, it was a, it was a one and done mission. It was the, the suits were used for one mission brought back and that was it. And they did a fine job. Nothing broke down in the suits. They, I do have a part in the suit of talking about Apollo 12 and Alan Bean's suit. They took Alan Bean's suit apart because they didn't want to touch uh, Buzz and Neil's suit. Um, Apollo 11, Apollo 12, uh, Pete Conrad, you know, he was the first guy in Apollo 12. Well, uh, you know, poor Al Bean, he was like the fourth guy, and they thought, well, let's just take his suit, and they took it a, took it all apart and cut it up. So they took the outer layer of the suit, the TMG, and they took it to White Sands, and they, they, they took it apart and analyzed it. And I think they were trying to find out if there was any meteorite, micrometeorite penetration, and I don't believe they were found any evidence of that. And even, even so, these, we're talking very, very fine particles, so you wouldn't even really see it. Um, and it would only hit the outside 
explode these small particles into finer particles, and they'd get slowed down by these, these, these layers and not penetrate the soup. But what they did find was the aluminized mylar had ripped and, and torn in places due to the flexing and the, the, you know, the motion that Alan put into when he was on the moon. So they learned something from that, and we had to build the patterns even a little bigger so that they weren't stressed. So we did learn something from that for the future missions. Um, so Apollo 1 and done. Now, when we get into the space shuttle era, and I'm not going to touch too much on that, but I will say that these suits nowadays are reusable. So you have, like, just we build sections. So there's leg sections, arm sections. Uh, those sections are built to be reused. And so they get a, they're a, a neoprene-coated nylon bladder, so it lasts, has a very long shelf life, uh, upwards of 10, uh, 15 years, maybe longer. The hardware can go longer. And they get inspected very thoroughly. The gloves are a lot less because they get beat up pretty bad. If an astronaut does a spacewalk, they're going to use their hands, and they're really going to beat the gloves up pretty good. Uh, but they all get inspected. They can be inspected on board the space station, and uh, there's, there's checks and balances. They can reuse those parts over and over again, whereas during Apollo, you couldn't do that. I'm speaking with Bill Airy, author of Lunar Outfitters, Making the Apollo Spacesuit. You can find more information about the book at the University Press of Florida website. If you like this podcast, Technology in Space, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history, please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and fullcontactnerd.com. Now back to the podcast. Do you know what part of the spacesuit caused the most problems for the engineers? Like what problem they, they had the most difficulty in solving? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. It was uh, uh, the, from a, a high-level view, it was mobility, trying to overcome, uh, just improve mobility, uh, so that was a challenge. So then the, the parts to develop of the suit were the restraint uh, and the bladder part of the suit. The restraint that hold all, held all the loads, that uh, nylon material, with the cables. I mentioned the steel aircraft cables that were uh, situated throughout the suit. And again, and I go into detail in the suit about it. But they were strategically placed so that when an astronaut was walking, bending, stretching, using tools, all the loads that were in the suit, not only the pressure loads, because remember, they're in the vacuum of space. The suit's pressurized at almost uh, four pounds per square inch, three and three quarters pounds per square inch. And so the pressure load, plus what we call the man load, where you're loading it uh, by stretching the tool and doing this, that, and walking and all that, that really uh, caused a, a lot of wear and tear. So those engineers had their hands full with designing the, the restraint and layer of the suit and how to take the loads and then repeatedly be able to, uh, like, say, walk on a treadmill over and over and over until uh, you could eliminate, you could you could fine-tune it so you found out where the failures might occur and then fix it. And interesting point is that we would take these rubber convolutes, these sections, and put them on a machine and put caps on either end, like take an elbow section and put a cap on each end, mm. pressurize it, and then flex it over and over and over again. And it would go, you know, hundreds of thousands of cycles. It would go all day long and no, no problem. As soon as you put it into a suit and put someone in the suit and you started flexing it, 
it wouldn't go, you know, it would start failing a very short period of time. Yeah. Um, so you, you have to be careful how you test a suit and challenge it. And, and this these are the challenges the engineers had. Mm-hmm. You really, even to this day, when they test suits and designs, you have to put a person in the suit and have them simulate what they're going to be doing because just putting something on a machine to flex it doesn't give you a true evaluation of what's happening in the suit itself. So, mm-hmm. um, so it was the, the restraint assembly that gave them the most problem. Even the, you know, if you're going to develop a next generation suit, they'll probably the last thing you develop is the TMG, the thermal uh, garment, because that's going to be, I don't want to say it's, e- it's not easy, but it's one of the easier pieces of the suit to develop. Mm-hmm. And that's, going to be solely based on what the mission requirement is. If you're going to go back to the moon or if you're going to go to Mars, two totally different ways of looking at how you're going to design that TMG layer. So uh, that's kind of left for last. It's the restraint layer that's taking all the loading that's going to fail first if you don't do it right. And, of course, the associated hardware that goes with all that. Mm -hmm. And once you integrate all that together, that's where the challenge is right there. Um, one of the thing, parts I'm fascinated by is are, are the boots. Can you talk a little bit about the, um, you know, the soles or you know the the weights sure. that they had there? Yeah. So the the, the so there was a, what was called the pressure boot. So when the astronaut puts on their spacesuit, they have the pressure boot, which is like a boot that you know you would typically wear, but it was all integrated onto the suit, and it had a, a this um, like a silicone material sole, boot sole. And one of the earlier problems we had was when the suit was in, inflated, that rubber sole would bow out and, and run a right to left side, uh, and, and it would create a problem. So the engineers came up with a convoluted uh, metal core piece that went inside that would only flex fore and aft so that it would keep the structural shape of it when the suit was pressurized. Uh, so it allowed them to walk. It had a convolute in the ankle so they could walk. Uh, so it was really just a restraint layer with a bladder layer and then the boot soles and also had the locking it had a metal piece in the heel where you could lock it into a foot restraint system mm-hmm. um so that was the the pressure boot when they left the lunar module go down on the on the lunar surface they had what was called the lunar boot so they would slip that on so that was a slip-on boot and that had that blue silicone material with the big grooves in it mm-hmm. because at the time when they were developing it they thought that they, all those the, you know the ground the the, the soil content of the moon was going to be very soft. They thought they might be sinking into the moon. They didn't know how far. Mm-hmm. But by the time, by that time, we'd sent some explorers uh, uh, to the moon, and uh, we kind of some robots. We kind of knew what it might be like. So the, the boots worked well. They, you know, they didn't sink very deep into the moon surface. And they also, you know, they, they had to have enough insulation because the moon surface is going to be hot. So you'd have some some conduction through that, that those layers. So we had to build it so there was the, the insulation layers in between mm-hmm. and it had to be flexible. And, uh, and it had that, that silver material, if you look at a, a lunar boot, you'll see some silver material. Now, silver material is also on the gloves and that was called chrome LR. It was a chromium steel material that was woven chromium steel. Mm-hmm. And uh, that had to be like puncture proof. It was, it was steel. 
mm-hmm. and it was woven in this material. And in 1968, that uh, a, one yard of that material cost up to three thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So do the math on that. It's like it was like you know, that was just a mind blow. They used to lock that material up in a in a vault mm-hmm. and only bring it out when they had to cut the patterns for the boots and the gloves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were worried that you know if they rubbed the boot against a sharp rock, it could penetrate through the boot and, and cause a leak. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they we wrapped that uh, chrome LR material around the outside of the boots. So that's that silver material. Mm-hmm. So how th- so how many uh, inches were would it be between the the bottom of an astronaut's foot and and the bottom of the the boot? Oh boy, that's a good question. I, I a rough guess. I would say with the sole and the the layers of material, and then the sole of the pressure boot, mm-hmm. you're probably talking about a good two inches, one inch and a half, maybe two inches, okay. possibly, somewhere in there. Okay. What would you say, uh, what would most people be most surprised by hearing about the suit, like some element of it or some design? That's a good question. I I have so many different things in the book that I think people find of interest that they wouldn't have guessed or known about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I always get the question, how you go to the bathroom in the suit, things like that. Yeah, but it, was, yeah. <laughs> it kind of comes down to, I think, you know, how the suit was tested. Like, like for instance, here's a funny story. Um, a good friend of mine, Richard Ellis, he's since passed away many years ago, but he was a model maker and he was a guy who they put in the suit to demonstrate the mobility of the suit. He was what they call the suit subject mm-hmm. who would get in and demonstrate it, and he was really good at it. So he told me a story one time. Um, you know, if the astronauts were on their way to the moon, like on Apollo 13, and they lost pressure, let's say they had lost pressure because they had that explosion. Now, fortunately, they kept the pressure, mm-hmm. but they had lost, uh, had a slow leak. They would have had to get in their suit, and they would have had to stay in that suit, pressurized, till they got to the moon, turned around, and came back to Earth. And so the suit had to be designed for 113 hours of nonstop wear. And so we had to have a way of coming up with a, a fecal containment system. So if you had to poop while you were in the suit for that many days, mm-hmm. you had to have a way to contain that. So we came up with this diaper system. And, you know, you think you can develop it, but how do you test something like that? Well, Richard gave you the answer for that. And that is he got in the suit one day, and the zipper in the Apollo suit was down the back, so they had the zipper open, and they had him sitting down on a, a table before they zipped him up and started pressurizing him. And he knew what he was getting into. They said, he, you know, this is a test of the fecal containment system. So they sat him down and he had this, this uh, uh, fecal containment system on. It was like a diaper. And they made him lean forward with the zipper open. And they took and pulled his diaper thing out and they took a can of cat food that was mixed with a certain percentage of water to simulate what, uh, you know, uh, it could be. Mm-hmm. And they dumped it down in the diaper. They closed it up, zipped them up, pressurized the suit and told them to work in the suit for like four hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just to make sure it stayed within the suit and didn't leak it within the containment system and didn't leak out. And he said it was the nastiest test he'd ever run. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just silly little things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think, it, you know, it did, I, as far as surprises or things that people find of interest, it, it's all going to depend on the reader. Some people are very, uh, very knowledgeable suits, and they're just going to find, I think, some of the little details of it, the different serial numbers and how they got switched around and how they were modified and, and uh, various details of the suits I think will find of interest. You're going to have a lot of readers, hopefully, who – don't know anything about a spacesuit, and they, they're just interested in hearing the story. Mm-hmm. And when they get into it, they're going to say, oh, I never would have guessed that. I, w- I wouldn't have thought that that's how the, you design a suit. I wouldn't have thought that there'd be challenges uh, in developing a suit this way and and, uh, and why a suit would fail and, and how it would fail and, 
and the way you, you, you overcome those challenges, like x-raying the suit for the uh, uh, needles that might have been left in it from the sellers. Mm-hmm. I think some people find the story interesting about the, the I call them the little old ladies that did the sewing. Uh, mm-hmm. Many of them weren't old ladies, and but nonetheless, they were all ladies that did the sewing on the suit. Mm-hmm. And here you had... Um, a program where we were trying to get to the moon by the end of the decade, and we were using some, such advanced technology. We had MIT, we had all these uh, universities and college-educated engineers and, and very smart people figuring out these very advanced systems, uh, microcomputers, small small devices we were developing to get us to the moon. But yet, one of the most critical items in what you see, the culmination of this whole thing was, I use the example of Buzz Aldrin standing on the moon there, the picture taken by Neil Armstrong, you don't see Buzz Aldrin. You see the spacesuit. So what the, the the you know the the image of Apollo on the moon was a spacesuit on the moon, mm-hmm. and these spacesuits were sewn by these ladies sitting at these old Singer sewing machines, yeah. uh, making stitches in the suit. Mm-hmm. And 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 Jim Lovell said in a little note he wrote to the ladies at the time, um, please sew straight and careful. I'd hate to have a tear in my pants on the moon. Hmm. He meant that. I mean, <laughs> it came down to these little ladies making these these stitches on these suits, and they had to hold the pressure. Um, and they couldn't fail, hmm. and they took their job very seriously. Oh, I'm sure. So, it's a good question. I think that uh, the readers will hopefully get a lot of different things out of it. So, you know, in the control room, they had all these experts in there. You know, to address any issues that might come up. Was there? Do you know if there was a, a an expert on the spacesuit present in case there yep. were? Yeah. Yeah, there was. Uh, both George Durney, the kind of the father, we call him the father of the Apollo spacesuit, he laid, laid the groundwork for it. Mm-hmm. And Homer Reem, who was the kind of the next generation, he was a college-educated uh, engineer that was kind of an underling to George at that time. Mm-hmm. Both George and Homer were down at Houston uh, at the uh, Space Center to, in the back room, and they were the go-to people if there was ever a problem with the suit. Mm-hmm. NASA wanted them there uh, to represent ILC. And... Um, they were quite happy to do it. They were, Homer told me he was very nervous. He said, George, who passed away a number of years ago, and he was a tough cookie. He wouldn't tell you he was nervous. <laughs> and Homer said he was probably very nervous, but you couldn't tell. But he said when Neil walked down and Buzz got down on the surface and they were uh, starting to jump around a little bit, both of them were like, okay, stop it. Just get up the ladder. You did your job. Go back inside. You did it. You accomplished it. Go. Let's call it, call it the end. Let's, let's quit all this nonsense jumping around. They were just, they were just nervous because um, – as Homer said, you could, and I've said it, you could test the suit all different ways. You can put it on a treadmill. You can put it in a vacuum chamber. You can do it on a KC-135 where they fly the parabolas and, and, and kind of simulate a one-six gravity. And you can do all these things with the suit. But the only true test of that spacesuit was the day that they opened that hatch and walked down on the moon because that was when it all came together. That's where you have the vacuum, you have the temperature, you have the solar, you have the 1.6G, you have everything going. That's what the suit was designed for. And that was the only time you could ever test it, um, you know, in one shot like that. So that that was where it became um, uh, a real challenging day for both Homer and George was watching that Apollo 11 um, um, mission. W- w- any stories related to when they pulled out that little lightweight golf club? Uh no, no, I, I touch on anything in the book, but, you know, uh, there's nothing to 
be concerned about at that point. It was farther into the Apollo missions. Mm-hmm. Um, the suit would definitely take that. Uh, um, a swinging of a golf club was no problem at all. And so, mm-hmm. so that was no different than probably some of the tools they were using, some of the motions they were going through. Um, I had one of the astronauts uh, uh, several years ago, Charlie Duke, uh, and it was, I think it was Dave Scott. I was talking to him about the suits, and he just smiled. He said, you know, he said, have you watched us falling down, jumping and falling on the moon? He said, you know, it was one of those things where he said, I got so comfortable in that suit, I had no concern at all about that suit failing. He said, if I jumped and I was hopping around and I tripped and I fell, he said, I had no concern. My concern, I think it was Charlie Duke that told me when he fell, if you watch one of the videos of his uh, moonwalk, mm-hmm. as he's falling, he flips over because he said, my concern was landing on the, the backpack, the primary life support system, which is built by Hamilton Standard. Mm-hmm. If I had fallen on that, it's kind of a fiberglass shell, and it could have done some damage. And he said, that was my main concern. I didn't want to break that. He said, I would. I was rolling over to fall on the suit because he said, I had no concern that the suit was going to fail. He mm-hmm. said, I was totally confident in it. So. So that was a that was really good to hear. I was very uh, happy to hear him say that. Yeah, a true testament to the workmanship. Yeah, yeah, they they really at that point. I think you know if you put them yourself in their place and you've never been in a suit and it was let's say it was one of the first early suits like maybe Apollo Seven mm-hmm. and you were of course they weren't doing a spacewalk so but still you're in the suit and it's never really been tried uh, you'd be pretty ginger with that suit you wouldn't want to be breaking things because you don't know but. But being an astronaut, you've probably spent a lot of time in it already training, mm-hmm. and you've probably been close to the office here at Houston knowing where the, the weaknesses are in the suit and, and seeing the correspondences and seeing how things are being fixed and how ILC was addressing the issues. And if you had the confidence in it, then it just slowly build up. You build up that confidence to the point where by Apollo uh, 15, 16, 17, they were just, they were just, uh, there was no problem at all. And even in, in Apollo 11 and, uh, and, and onward, I, I think they were very comfortable in the suits. Mm-hmm. Do you recall, were you told about, um, the security for the suits? Like I can imagine maybe the Soviets trying to, you know, get some ideas of what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the whole Apollo program, I think had a, a real, uh, uh, there was a lot of concerns about security. So, and the suits were certainly uh, kind of a, an advantage. You know, NASA paid a lot of money for those suits and the development of it, and we didn't want to give that away. So so when we were to ship a suit, uh, we would put it into a special case. We'd hire an a airplane to fly us over to Baltimore, Washington Airport. One of the engineers would tell me he would fly over uh, with this big case. It was a pretty big suitcase. And he would put it on this little private plane out of a local airport, and they would fly over to Baltimore, and then they would um, uh, be the last out to the plane and watch it go. They'd be on the on the runway there, on the tarmac there, watching it go into the cargo hold. They would shut it, and when it was shut, they would come up and get into the plane, and they were the first off when it landed. So they were the first off, gathered the suit. So they never left that suit um, uh, when they were traveling. Um, so it had to be secure at all times. Um, and also little things like uh, there there'd be a number of cases where a suit might have to be modified. Uh, there was an issue maybe with some bad rubber, as I said earlier. The the lot of rubber that we had used from one production run was uh, deemed to not be acceptable. So on one of the Apollo missions, we had to take 
uh, both the flight suits and the backup suits and modify them with new rubber convolutes. They had to be flown from the Kennedy Space Center up to Dover, but you could never fly both of those suits at the same time because if something happened, if there was a plane crash with one of the suits, you'd always have to have the other suit uh, on another plane. You couldn't put them both on one aircraft. Hmm. So those are kind of one of the security things as far as uh, mission requirements went. Hmm. But, yeah, there was always concern about the, the Russians getting their hands on it. And it was funny because years later you could see how the Russians did kind of um, – gloves and different various things they would they kind of copied a little bit um although they do have some unique ways of doing their own design work and uh and it works for them mm-hmm. but yeah it was pretty top secret back then so the ilc building itself it was pretty secure i imagine yeah yeah they had a security guard and it was pretty tough to get in there uh, so yeah absolutely mm-hmm. so you mentioned some of the sources you used for your research you know the interviews and having worked there um were there any other uh interesting maybe artifacts or, or uh, documentary evidence or something that you used? Oh, yeah. I've got uh, in my library here, I've got three file cabinets that are filled. I mean, I can't hardly squeeze another uh, folder into any of these files that I have. They're all original Apollo documents. So they're all correspondence between ILC and, and NASA. There's a lot of internal uh, documents. There's a lot of test reports. Uh, there's so much that I have. It's um, It really helped me because, you know, when I relied on the story of these uh, Apollo veterans, I'm getting stories that are 40 and 50 years removed. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the stories I heard when I first started working there, they were very memorable. So I, uh, they were pretty fresh in everybody's mind. And so they're, they're in the book. Uh, but it started getting a little vague if you were to talk to Homer Ream and a couple of the other surviving uh, members of the Apollo teams, and you ask them questions about the development of this particular item or this thing or that, um, they'd scratch their head and they'd go, oh, gosh, I, I don't remember. I think we did this or that. And so it might have given me some help in framing, uh, you know, the big picture of what happened, but I would go through all these files that I had, and at one time or another, I would come across the answer to the question I was looking for, and it, and it, it pegged it right to the day. I mean, it was a memo written maybe on that day of a failure that happened, and here's what we're going to do to fix it. There were some status reports for the week, and it would say, during this week, here's what we did. We had this failure, and here's what we did to fix it. And, and so I came across a lot of that. So mm-hmm. that was really helpful. Without that, uh, this book wouldn't have this book wouldn't be nearly as meaningful. That's why I'm, I'm proud of the fact that in the back there's all the reference notes. I think there's I forget, I lost count seven or eight pages of notes that I have that all have references to it. And I'm proud of that because um, it, it means that, you know, I got this data from, from real world memos and documents that were done at the time. And, uh, and so it was, it was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Now this, I don't know if this is a rumor, some kind of rumor, or, or if there's any a truth to it, but I think where the astronauts, um, was it planned for them to carry sidearms in case when they returned they might have been, you know, captured by the Soviets? Did they? Was there anything to that? No, no, no I'm not aware of that. Now, that's now I'm the spacesuit guy. Uh, there's definitely no no pockets for a gun. I can tell you that. Yeah. Um, if if they were on board, I I've never heard that. I, I've never heard that they carried anything. So mm-hmm. no, they you know their survival kit I think had a machete in it in case they landed in a jungle zone or something like that but mm-hmm. i think at the time even though 
even though you know that we were always in competition, especially early on with the with the the, the Soviets. I I think that we I think the feeling probably would have been if we had come down in their territory, they would have helped us out and rescued them. And I don't know that they would have. Um, now we weren't going to shoot them because they were trying to help us. So I think that would have been a. I could see them looking at that and and, and within a minute saying, "No, that's not a good idea." Mm-hmm. And so would the suits have been this tested at all for you know again return i guess they would have gotten out of the suits once they returned there would be no need for you know difficult terrain testing or anything like that no no uh the only the only um issue we worried about on earth here with the suits was a water um uh water egress where you're going into the water um because you know the suits were worn for launch Mm -hmm. they were worn for critical parts of the mission where they were doing uh where they were rendezvous, where they were connecting with a lunar module, and uh, and when they were going into the down to the moon, anything anytime there's a critical part of the the mission where they were disconnecting or connecting spacecraft, they had their suits on and ready to pressurize. Didn't even mean they were pressurized at the time. So the only times they were really pressurized was when they did their their lunar walk, and near the end of the missions, um, early on, they wanted to wear the suits for. Uh, splashdown. So for reentry and splashdown, they wanted to have the suits on somewhere in the middle. And I couldn't quite peg which mission it was. I know toward the end mm-hmm. by uh, certainly by maybe 15, 16, I know by 17, but they did not even wear their suits for reentry, mm-hmm. uh, which surprised me a little bit because I know some astronauts, some Russians, uh, cosmonauts were killed when their uh, spacecraft uh, lost pressure on reentry. Mm-hmm. Um so I was surprised to see that we didn't uh, have our astronauts in our suits. Uh, but early on, they were concerned about the astronauts uh, having to bail out into the water when they landed in the ocean. So we had a neck dam that we built that was a device that could, it was a rubber dam that would pull over your head and it would lock into the neck ring where the helmet would go. Yeah. And so it would keep water from flooding down into the suit because mm-hmm. that's how Gus Grissom almost didn't survive on his Gemini mission where he had the, the, uh, the door sprung open and the capsule started sinking and he had to jump out in the water and water started flo- flooding into a suit. Mm-hmm. And with the weight of all that, it would have taken him to the bottom and they just rescued him in, in just a nick of time. Mm-hmm. So we developed this neck dam that would keep that from happening. But but that was it. There was no other survival thing we had to worry about with the suit. So how long uh, does it take to get into and out of the suit and do you have to have help from someone else? Yeah, I was recommended to have help. I think these guys were pretty good after a while. They knew what they were doing. But um, uh, if you watch uh, anybody, I think on YouTube, you can probably see uh, a video of, of uh, my old boss, Tom Sylvester. There was something floating around out there of him suiting up in a laboratory. You could see what it was like getting in the suit. Mm-hmm. It would take, um, and they would, he would have assistance. Um, it would take, you know, to get from having your underwear on to getting into the suit and then closing it up and pressurizing it would probably take about eight to ten minutes i would say and that's Mm. because they kind of knew what they were doing Mm. so it was never meant to be an emergency thing where you had seconds to get in it uh but you could get into it pretty quickly in zero gravity it became a little easier because you're kind of floating around a little bit so you're not in a 1g environment it's a little tough because you're working against gravity you got to pull it up over you and all that in uh, floating around in a capsule uh, it became probably a little bit easier, although it was never easy. But uh, it's even like today's suits are not easy to get in. Uh, they're a little easier to get out of, but mm-hmm. to get into them, um, you, you, if you know what you're doing, it's 
pretty easy. It's it's painless. It's hmm. almost effortless. Mm-hmm. But to watch a person for the first time, it's it looks like it's a struggle. Mm-hmm. What uh, what was personally for you? What was the most surprising thing you came across? Oh, in doing the research here. Yep. Um, probably a few of the models I didn't know existed in the development stage. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've known, I've learned so much over the years that it, very little of it was a surprise. Mm-hmm. The surprise was maybe actually finding the document that backed up what I kind of thought I knew, mm-hmm. or, or maybe maybe even uh, showed that I wasn't really correct on it, but but I wasn't far off. But here's what really happened. So it was like finding gold when I found some of these records. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there wasn't any really any one thing. Like say, there was a couple suit models that uh, I, I stumbled across some pictures, and I saw this one picture with a suit that didn't have a zipper in the back, and I couldn't figure out well, how would you get in the suit. And then I realized they tried to make a model where they put this zipper in the front, mm-hmm. and so they could free up a section of the waist where you could bend a little easier in the, at the waist section. And so that that uh, surprised me. Um, but yeah, I can't I can't say uh, I really got a kick out of putting this book together because every time I read a memo, I was kind of like putting myself in their position. I kind of as I read it, I, I felt like I was living at that time when they were having a struggle overcoming this problem. Why was the cable cutting through in this section, and uh, how could they overcome it? Uh, why was the rubber failing? What could they do to fix that? And 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 it was kind of like I really got kind of sucked up into it, and I, mm-hmm. because again I think a lot of us when we watched Neil Armstrong walk on walk on the moon and and the others, it was just kind of you, you get blown away by that. I was, and I, I know a lot of other people were, mm-hmm. and so to be immersed in it, to live through these documents at the time right before that, where they're developing these suits, and here's the problems they had, and you have one week to solve this problem, and they did. It was pretty pretty amazing and uh, so I, I just found that fascinating mm-hmm. was there uh, any particular point of fact uh, you wanted to establish or put into the book but uh, was the most difficult to um, to research to get that proof that you were looking for like you mentioned the memos trying to find the memos yeah um, yeah there's one area that that's a stumbling block for me a little bit uh, we were teamed up with Hamilton Standard uh, from 62 to 1965, and we were a subcontractor, and it was really uh, it was a real blow to the engineers at ILC because we wanted to be the prime contractor, but we didn't have the rigor to, to the, that NASA wanted, so it all made sense um, the way NASA structured it, but it was a real problem. I mean, you had a, a Hamilton Standard trying to tell us how to build spacesuits, and our engineers didn't want to hear that. And so I'd heard a story from Bob Wise many years ago saying that he said, you know, at one point in the back room during that contract with Hamilton, we had our own engineers trying to devise our own suit the way we wanted to do it. And we were kind of like in the back door doing this in a back room. So they didn't know we were doing it. And we were using some of that contract money to do it. And so it was probably not ethical to do what we were doing. But he said, by golly. We knew how to build a suit. We didn't want engineers up there at Hamilton who had no idea how to build a suit telling us how to build a suit. So I went with his story because I came across a couple pictures that um, kind of shed some light on it where we were devising uh, some suits that had zippers in different areas, like in the back where we weren't doing that at the time. The shoulder, this one picture had a different, totally different shoulder than what Hamilton Standard wanted us to develop at the time. So 
I had to believe that that story that Bob told me was true. Mm-hmm. And so one of the only survivors that uh, might have been of help was Homer Reem. And he just, he couldn't recall. He said, I don't remember that. But he said, I'm not going to discount the fact that it didn't really happen. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was kind of a tricky area for me. And it's it's not a crucial part of the, you know, it didn't, it, it, I didn't put it in the book to sway minds and make it a big uh, point of the book. It was just an interesting point. And I think that it probably did happen because I know these guys. I know the egos. I know George and <laughs> and Mel and and um, and Bob Wise, and they would they were probably feeling pretty put out by the fact that Hamilton was trying to tell us how to build a suit, and we didn't want to hear that because what they were trying to tell us to do was use uh, methods that were good for aerospace and aircraft design, but not necessarily for spacesuits. But mm-hmm. that's just the way their engineers thought. And we didn't think that way, and, and in the end we prevailed, but it took a long time to get there. So we were in this – I could see where they would be in a back room developing a suit that they liked, and they would – if things and things weren't going well at the time with that suit design that Hamilton wanted. So I could see where they would think, well, we'll go put this together and, and, and take a little trip down to Houston and knock on the door of our customer down there one day and say, look, um, we kind of did this on the side. What do you think? And maybe win some favor with NASA to say, oh, well, you guys really do know what you're doing. So uh, I could see it happening. But it's really an interesting story, the dynamics of how that contract all played out. is kind of a David and Goliath. And, and in the end, uh, ILC came out on top. And, uh, and uh, But they had a long, long way to go because, you know, we were just a small organization that didn't have any – configuration management, systems engineering, quality kind of sucked. We didn't have a good quality group at the time. Mm-hmm. And so we had to build up all that. So when we won it again in 1965, NASA said, okay, we learned our lesson. We're not going to make a team with anybody. You're going to be the prime contractor on the suit, but you got to get your act together and figure out how to do all that. And we did. It took a, it took a couple years before we learned configuration management. We learned configuration management systems engineering and uh, quality, but we got there eventually and we, we made a very good product, but it, you know, this was all new at the time. The, mm-hmm. There were engineers at NASA that, that would that admitted that when they were hired out of college in the early sixties to do this great uh, Apollo project, one of them was thrown on the Apollo contract and said, you're going to be in charge of the spacesuits and learn about spacesuits. And he said, what is a spacesuit? And they, <laughs> they didn't know. And it was like, you're going to learn. We don't, we don't really know what all the, requirements of a spacesuit are so mm. no one knew mm. so uh, how big was ilc at this time like roundabout personnel so oh, gosh when we first won the contract we we might have had uh, uh five engineers and a handful of sewers mm. probably uh not many quality people they they i'm sure they didn't ha- they didn't have any configuration management or systems engineering no one knew what that was if you'd asked george sterney what a, 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 a systems engineer was, he wouldn't have had a clue. <laughs> uh, configuration management was so important because if you designed a suit and it fit right and NASA, and it was using all the right materials, the right seams were in it, and everything was just right, you better, by God, be able to build another suit just like it. And if you can't, then you, we, you know, they didn't want a suit from us. So the configuration management was very, very important. It said that if you develop a suit and that's the suit they want because of all what I just covered, all the testing, everything that wrung out, all the problems with that suit, and you figure out what you want, you better build another suit just like it, and all the suits that follow it better be exactly that way. 
But if you make a change to that third suit because something failed or they didn't like something with that, that third suit, the fourth suit, better you better control that configuration. It better be right for the next ones after that. Mm-hmm. So that was something that no one at ILC understood. So by the time we got up to 1968, 69, at the height of the program, we had almost 900. Well, I think we had over 900 employees. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So it, it grew by leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm. Nice. So I know that this kind of book maybe doesn't lend itself to this sort of question, but was there anything you came across that had a, a strong emotional impact on you? Oh, um, yeah, uh, there's uh, so much of it. I, I, um, I can't I can't pinpoint one particular thing. Uh, again, I, I I go back to what I said earlier. The emotion of the day. It was like reading a, a memo of a problem that happened and feeling for, you know, this 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 problem that they had and how to overcome it. Um, I think the the overall when I sit back and I read through the book because I just got a copy of the book the other day and. I was sitting out back reading. My wife was like, are you reading your book again? <laughs> After all the, all everything I've gone through to do all the cleanup of it and all the readings and all the, you know, you write the book and then you're going to sit there and read the book. Well, I really enjoyed it. And, and as I read some of it, I did get, you know, a little, little emotional. Some of the hair stood up on my arm reading about some of the, the, the challenges and, and how we, you know, the contract went and losing it and winning it and, and some of the ladies that did the sewing and how we overcame the issues with, you know, how do you sew this big bulky spacesuit under a sewing machine? Well, they designed a, a special machine that made it work. And it was just, yeah, the whole thing's kind of an emotional ride for me. Yeah. Of course, I'm a geek that's really caught up in it, too, so <laughs> who am I to ask? <laughs> hey, no, that's, yeah, that's good stuff. Um <laughs> So apart from, you know, filling the historical gap and providing these details, um, what do you hope the reader will take away from the book? Well, a number of things. There's going to be different readers. Again, there's going to be the reader who really doesn't know much about suits um, um, and is going to learn a lot from it. So I think that 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 particular reader is going to walk away uh, understanding um, the challenges of designing a spacesuit and why a spacesuit is made the way it is. You're going to have readers that kind of know what the spacesuit is, but they didn't know the challenges ILC faced and this small company and, 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 and all the other contractors, too, that were involved as far as the suit goes, and including Hamilton and how they'd won it and then lost it and, and uh, what the challenges were there and the challenges for NASA. So from a program standpoint of Apollo, you know, the, they're going to come away with a better understanding of what those challenges were from a program standpoint. There's going to be... I wrote it with uh, a technical detail in it because I hope that I know there's a lot of young engineers working down at, at NASA uh, that NASA has hired as NASA employees to understand spacesuits or take more of a role in understanding spacesuits. Mm-hmm. And, and other engineers that are coming out of college that might be involved in the design of suits in the future. Um, I would like them to understand the history because, face it, anything, like if you're into cars, let's say you, you like uh, modern cars, you want to go buy a Corvette today, mm-hmm. you're probably going to want to know about the history or you will know about the history of the, the Corvette if you're a Corvette fan or you're, you like cars, you want to know about the history of it. Mm-hmm. Same with today's spacesuits or future spacesuits. Where did it start? Well, it started in Apollo, and, and here's, here's the story. So I hope those people get something out of it. Um, I put a section there on the Smithsonian because there's a whole group of people that are doing a fine job at, at the Air and Space Museum trying to preserve these these uh, relics. If you know, I, I think it's pretty emotional for a lot of people to go to the Air and Space Museum. It's it's the most 
I think I want to say it's the most visited museum in the world. Mm. It was at one point. It, the numbers may up, be up and down. I don't know who, who would challenge it. But um, uh, and when they go to the Air and Space Museum, one of the things that they go to see is the spacesuit and the Armstrong suit, which, by the way, is, is back on display after it was taken off because for a number of years uh, they found that um, the suit needed a lot of work, needed to be preserved better. They need to have better understanding of how to preserve it. And so um, so I hope the reader gets some understanding of how delicate, even though you think a suit's very robust, it had to save humans on the moon and keep them alive. Well, it's still a very, uh, you know, 50 years later, this suit is, is basically falling apart inside because it's got the old rubber in it. Mm-hmm. And so how do you preserve it? And the Smithsonian's doing a good job on that. And I, I have a chapter on that. So there's multiple levels depending on who the reader is. And uh, I can see a reader reading that first section of, how ILC overcame challenges. The people that are into sewing, uh, there's there's a lot of there's a world out there that's very much into the seamstress work, what they did, the sewing, the dynamics of all that. And uh, I get that question a lot. And you're going to read up a lot about that and those challenges. So um, I cover that in pretty good detail too. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it's 422 pages. So yeah, I'm sure there's there's plenty of information. Yeah, I could I could see where someone pick it up and read through the first half of the book when it starts getting more technical about, you know, this model suit versus that model suit, I could see him kind of leafing through it. So I didn't write it for someone to, you know, it's not a Stephen King novel. You read it from front to back to understand the whole thing. It's kind of like uh, the true uh, space nut will read it from front to back and enjoy the whole thing. Uh, the technical person will skim through the front. I think they'll find it interesting and really enjoy the technical part of it and the people who are interested in the sewing and the challenges and, and the corporate, the contract part of it will read the front part and maybe not so much the, the other part. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah, a little bit for everybody. Do you think, uh, is there sort of a space suit design gap, information or knowledge gap um, from like the end of the shuttle missions to, you know, sort of nowadays, you know? Well, um so, yeah, I've been pretty involved in that because I started there with the space shuttle era. You know, we designed the suit for the space shuttle. And the problem there was that spacesuits aren't cheap. And a lot of it's in the backpack, primary life support system built by Hamilton Sunstrand, uh, United Technologies. Um, and there's, they're getting down on the amount they have now. They don't build them anymore, so NASA just has to maintain what they have. The problem is that the cost to the program, especially throughout shuttle, was so high. And the suits were were so good, I mean, they were good, and they did the, they fulfilled all the mission requirements. So NASA never put money back into the suit design development. They did at times. They gave us some money to do a, you know, a eight pound per square inch suit, a higher operating pressure suit. Hmm. Uh, but we built one suit. And then, you know, they give us, feed us some money here and there to do uh, little changes. But it, it was so expensive to do a, a wholesale change to a spacesuit that NASA never did that. They were happy with what they had. So the problem, the downside of that is it's like you develop a car and, you know, it's a 1958 Chevy and you like the Chevy so much because it keeps running. It's like Cuba. You know how they keep their old cars running? (laughs) It's kind of like NASA. They keep the suits running because they like it. It works. It's okay. And they just haven't put the money into it. Hmm. Now they're coming to a reckoning where um, they realize that these suits can't keep holding up. They've got to have a new design using new state-of-the-art materials. So we have a division at, at ILC that's down in Houston that that works right out of the back door of, of the space center down there that uh, helps the engineers 
we try to help them as much as we can in fostering a good relationship. We, we develop parts for them. They do have a bigger, when I retired last year, and I don't keep up as like, like I used to, but so this is Bill Airy speaking from the little, little perspective of, of the past, but I think I'm close to this. They have new engineers coming into NASA who they want to start taking control of spacesuit design. They want to start figuring out how the next generation suit's going to look. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they have the shops to do the sewing, to do some of the finer design work. So they were coming back to ILC, and we were helping with that. At the same time, we developed our own suit. We ILC invested money in developing an advanced suit that we could say to NASA, look, we already have an advanced suit. How do you like this suit? Mm-hmm. And it's up to them to say whether or not they'd like that or whether they want to continue on and develop their own suit mm-hmm. using maybe some of our parts. Um, it gets into contractual issues like where NASA, like, you know, at one point they gave us money to develop a suit, the Z2 suit, and then when we were done, they came to us and said, well, um, we want all your drawings and, and everything, all your uh, work instructions on how you build it, and as a company, you can't do that. You've got to say, well, no, you, you're, the contract was to design and develop a suit, which we delivered to you. It did not include all of the work instructions, everything, so you can go off and build it yourself because <laughs> and that defeats the whole point of having uh, corporations do things and businesses develop things. It's if the government does everything, why do you need business? So, um, so there's a little, you know, again, this is Bill Airy speaking, but that's, that's where it gets a little tricky but it kind of, in answer to your question, there is a gap, but they're looking at it. They're figuring out what, what the next move is. Now, the biggest challenge is, uh, what's next? I mean, you know, NASA's got to have a mission. We've got to have something firm. Are we going to go back to the moon? Or are we going to go to Mars? And until that's really established, you can kind of have a prototype of what you want, but you don't want to keep putting money into something. If you've got a prototype that's going to go back to the moon, it could be useful for Mars, you kind of got it and you stop there until you've got the money to have the the actual mission go because you just can't keep spending money to develop something that's already kind of developed. You just have to fine-tune it. And I think that's kind of where they're at. They've got a suit that's, that's kind of developed. They've got to fine-tune it for the missions. And in the meantime, they'll keep, you know, looking at like maybe electronics for heads-up display in the helmets, those kind of things that, that I would hope ILC would kind of be looking at. But if not... Uh, at least NASA or someone will, and you haven't asked it, but I get get a lot of questions about uh, uh, SpaceX um, um, (laughs) and and what they're doing. And Elon Musk is a very interesting individual, um, and I like what he does. I mean, here's a person who can design rockets at at a lot cheaper cost because he wants to do it himself. He doesn't want to buy that $100,000 thrust actuator uh, like, like Lockheed or the other companies might do and then just upcharge NASA, he'll build it for $10,000 and maybe upcharge it a little bit. But when the rocket's built, it's a lot cheaper. And I have to, my hat's off to someone like him. And he wants to do it all himself. So if he wants to do a spacesuit, like he did the, the uh, intravehicular suits, and again, I don't call them spacesuits. They can be called spacesuits, but I don't personally call them spacesuits. He built the in, intravehicular suits used on that SpaceX mission that went to the space station. They're pressure suits. Um, It's fairly easy, relatively easy, to build a pressure suit so that in case you lose pressure, you just seat it in the capsule. You can get back to Earth uh, in your pressurized suit if you lose pressure in an emergency, and it works fine. But 
if you're going to do an extravehicular activity suit, it takes a lot of work to do that. Mm-hmm. And if someone like Elon Musk wants to take that work on, uh, more power to them. And uh, I think it's NASA wants that. They don't want to just have ILC be in the uh, head, the, 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 the only uh, company out there developing spacesuits. Not, that's not in their interest. And it's not in the interest of America if we want to advance suits. But it's, no one's going to, who's going to open up a shop tomorrow and say, I'm going to start building spacesuits? You just don't <laughs> do that. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about the SpaceX suits. Um, so you anticipated that question. Yeah, I, I kind of, as I said it, I thought that you, you might <laughs> ask. Were there any difficulties in finishing the book or getting it published? No, I was shocked, actually. I, uh, I, I finished it. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not, I say I'm not a writer. I'm not a writer. I don't write books. I uh, had a story that had to be told. So I, I started it out, and it took me six months to get the first uh, half of the first chapter written because I kept going back and rereading it and fixing it. And finally one day I said, I, I can't do this. i got to just re- write it. I've got to put it on paper, follow my outline, stick to it, and then go back and fix the whole thing from front to beginning. And, and that's what I did. And then I had editors at University Press of Florida. They edited it, and they had a fair amount of editing to do because, again, I'm not a writer. Mm-hmm. But I was very pleased with what they did. I just knew I had a good story to tell, and, and I had all the pictures. You'll, you'll notice there's a lot of illustrations and pictures in the book. Mm-hmm. And one of the editors, the first ones I had, uh, wrote back to me in an email and said, oh, you know, this is, a great, this is going to be great. It's a great read, but I'm just telling you right now, uh, they're not going to accept all these images. You're going to have to cut them down to like a third of what you have here. Mm-hmm. And I wrote her back, and I said, no, it's not going to happen. I said, either we don't publish this book or we keep the pictures in it because I'm not going to budge on that one. <laughs> and, uh, and, and sure enough, they kept them in. I, I wrote back like maybe the next day to the person that was kind of in charge down in Florida there, and I said, listen, I said, I might get a little pushback here, but I'm telling you right now, these are critical to the book. Mm-hmm. And I don't recall her response, but it was, uh, you know, I didn't get any pushback at all, and they kept it all in there. So I was very pleased with that. And, um, yeah, I, I'm very pleased with that. I went to two publishers, and both of them uh, took it uh, almost immediately. Um, the University Press of Florida was much more reputable than the first one I went to. And um, so I, I wanted to go with them, and they it took them a little while, and I think it's because it was changing personnel. One person read it, and they, they were out on leave for a while, and, and I wasn't pushing it. So I just kind of thought it fell through the cracks, and they weren't interested. Mm-hmm. Um and then they came back and said, oh, no, no, we're, this is really good. We want it. So I was very, very honored that um, that I, you know, I hear stories about people trying to get books published and they, they have trouble with it. But now I, I had no, no issue at all. That's good. I can actually imagine people also, people who are into space imagery just buying the book for that just so they can flip through these um, cool images. Yeah, you know, I found that the reason I did it was because you can't, you can't talk about a convolute. You can't talk about the uh, aircraft cables that are in the suit and the pulleys and where the zippers are located. And you can't do any of that. And there's other technical details I have in there, the, the ply-ups, all the layers of material. You can't do it in words. If you were to do it in words and take pictures out, people go cross-eyed about a third of the way, a quarter of the way through that book, they put it down. Yeah. I would, personally. I, I wouldn't be interested in reading about the details of how a convolute flex or, uh, but when you put the pictures in it and you show, or you show the testing and you show the people, you know, if I'm talking about George Durney and he was a, a B-17 pilot and got shot down and held prisoner of war in World War II 
and he he's a character. George Derny, that's a story in itself. And I wanted pictures of George in there. I wanted you to see what he looked like. He was a hard guy, a tough guy to deal with, but that's because of where he came from. And I wanted you to see, and I had those pictures. I had him there with his air crew next to his B-17. I wanted those pictures. So, so yeah, it, it, it just had to happen in my mind, and I'm glad they – and the quality of the book is pretty good. Good. So even though you're not a writer, uh, do you have another writing project in mind associated with this? <laughs> you know, I'd love to. I'd love to tell a story about the space shuttle suit and the current station suit. But the problem is, there's these ITAR requirements that government doesn't allow. You know, if it's something that's in production now, and the government's paying for it. Mm. They're not going to be too pleased if you go out and write the book on how it's all done, and probably nor would uh, ILC. So that, unfortunately, you know, maybe someday I can do that, uh, and then possibly can because I'm. You know, the station's going to come to an end at some point, mm-hmm. and they're going to, whatever the next missions are, and hopefully they're going to have something to fall on to. Mm-hmm. It should be using a new generation suit, so maybe. I, I thought about um, going over to Smithsonian and, and, and uh, working with them, Kathy Lewis over there and Lisa Young, and researching the gloves they have in their collection, just doing a kind of a picture book on, on spacesuit gloves. Gloves have gone come a long way over the development um, from from the beginning, you know, the Mercury gloves had little flashlight, little lights on the fingertips when John Glenn flew. And there's just little things that are some people find. So then it gets into the nuances of uh, directing this toward people who find uh, uh, little parts of spacesuits interesting, like the gloves or glove designs and things. And so I thought that might be of interest. So maybe, I'm not sure. I, I really... I, I want to tell this story because I worked with them for 41 years, mm-hmm. lived Apollo throughout those years uh, because of the history of it, and uh, I just wanted to, and, and because of these people were my friends and close friends and I'd known for years, I wanted to tell their story, and that was what it was all about. So, mm-hmm. so now that that was that's my primary thing, and if something else falls out of this in the future, yeah, it'd be great. I think I learned a lot from it. I kind of miss it. I did enjoy writing it. Uh, mm-hmm. It kind of, you know, I felt it kind of kept your brain sharp mm-hmm. because you're 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 using your brain a lot as you're writing. So it was definitely good. Mm-hmm. Well, as a fan of space history, I I'd, I'd uh, re- put, humbly request that you do write this book on space shuttle suits and and ho- keep it in hold, you know, yeah, a- until yeah. it can be released um, for everyone interested in that. And you're right. To your point, I, I could uh, definitely start gathering the information together and. Um, and telling that story, uh, there's interesting things like uh, one of the things that people might find of interest is that uh, when I started working there, you know, the, the Apollo program was over. They were using rubber in the suits and materials that were state-of-the-art in the 60s. Now you're getting in the late 70s and 80s. Uh, this new material, and you might have heard of it, it's called Kevlar. Well, that was new. DuPont had come out with that in the 70s, and, and um, I can remember uh, running material testing the engineers, Bob Wise and those guys, are developing this new shuttle suit, and they thought the greatest thing, you know, since sliced bread was this new material called Kevlar, yeah. and they wanted to make the restraint out of Kevlar because it wouldn't stretch and it was going to be a really tough material. So we started testing it, and I remember taking this material in strips and bending it in the middle. I'd flex it, and I'd flex it back and forth, and just like a piece of metal, I'd put it in the machine, and I'd tensile test it, and the tensile value fell by a great amount, it, it, you know, more than half the tensile value, uh, because Kevlar can't be flexed and, and hold strength. 
And th they didn't know that at the time, but we were in the midst of developing this, this space shuttle suit that was going to be made out of Kevlar. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that was like just a little tidbit of, of, you know, where we started on the next generation suit. They were off and running on developing suits made out of this Kevlar material. And it just, uh, Kevlar is great for like bulletproof vests. It's uh, it's got very good reasons to uh, use it in different applications, but mm -hmm. definitely not in some structure where it could be flexed back and forth like in a spacesuit. Interesting. Yeah, these are things that I would love to have recorded for 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 all time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, to your point, um, I I may look into that. I'm I'm letting this. I'm digesting. This book right now, I'm still reading it, and <laughs> I'm going to enjoy that, and, yeah. and maybe it's a good start for a winter project. And, you know, as a podcaster, I'd say, you know, if nothing else, just sit down with the recorder and start recording your thoughts, so, you know. Yep. So, I, I'm really making a pitch to to preserve this history, as you can tell. <laughs> and that's good. I, I appreciate the people that appreciate the history, because that is that is exactly what I do. Mm -hmm. I think I was inspired so much... Uh, in my work that I started back in the uh, 1998 and 99 when I started going over to Smithsonian and helping them out, mm -hmm. I started to get a better appreciation for preserving the history. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, to your point, I think uh, I think it is worthwhile doing. So uh, can people find you uh, Can people find you on the web? Do you have social media or website or anything? I've got to. I've got to come up with some. I will do that. I, I have a you know an email address, and I, I really haven't gotten in. I'm going. I'm going to have to do that because I know there's going to be a lot of questions. There's going to be a lot of points. You know, you always have readers that say, "Well, yeah, but you know, I think you're wrong on this, or I, you need to fix this or that." In which I'm open. I'm fine with that because I'm not perfect. Mm -hmm. So yes, uh, I've had some things filtered in from the publisher, but I do need to have a link so that I can. Uh, uh, have direct answers to people's questions, concerns, comments, mm -hmm. and I will make a point of that, and I will do that. And I'll say just uh, from my experience, I think writers do best with Twitter accounts, and I know a lot of people have negative things to say about it, but uh, Twitter, I think, is the best way for authors to reach out to readers. Just Well, that's good. I appreciate you telling me that. So I will jot that down. I'll look into a Twitter account, and uh, um, I will... Uh, set that up because I, I do need to do it. I, it's been in the back of my mind and, uh, you know, I haven't been pressed. Uh, I've had one, one, uh, person from, uh, South Korea ask if it was going to be translated. And, uh, uh, so that was filtered in through the, uh, publisher, but, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I will look into this. Cool. Cool. Well, that's all the questions I, and I'll also add, if anyone does have, you know, interest in the book you can always go to the university press of florida website and look up the book there or on amazon it's uh it's on amazon yes it's on amazon it's also on barnes and noble as i understand it mm -hmm. so that's all the questions i have do you have any uh final thoughts or words no i uh i think you you asked some excellent questions um i think i've covered just about everything i <laughs> just in summary i would say uh i was pleased that when it was done, it addresses a lot of different people. It addresses uh, historians. It addresses uh, it, it's um, some I think engineers, uh, aerospace engineers, uh, spacesuit engineers will find of interest. Um, people who are into the trade of like sewing and, and the challenges of, of, of you know how was a spacesuit made? Just rudimentary stuff. You can get it out of the book. So it addresses a lot of different things, and uh, I just hope people find it of interest and. Um, 
uh, I'm pleased with it overall. I, uh, again, it's not perfect. I'm going to fix any of the issues that are wrong with it, but uh, it's a good start, and I think uh, it'll it'll uh, serve history well. Oh, yeah. I think it'll be an awesome read for anyone. Um, yeah, so thanks very much for speaking with me. Well, thank you, Chris. A very good interview. I'd like to say I think you did a great job asking the questions, and uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank right. you. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Technology in Space, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history, please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter to keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. Thanks for listening.